Amen. Good morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, uh, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Um, but before you do, I want to I remind you and, and call attention to what we just sang. Because uh, I think it's easy to sing songs and, and not catch the meaning of what the song is saying. Um, Adeline, would you mind putting, putting that song back up there, those lyrics? What amazes me about this song is it was written by a 20-year-old lady back in the 1800s. So you college students, um, you too can be theologians. Um, this 20-year-old, 20, 20 right, sophomore in college, wrote this song. Before the throne, the very throne of God, I have a strong and perfect plea. Not a beg. I don't walk in with my head down. I have a strong and perfect plea because I have a great high priest and his name is love, and he is ever living and pleading for me. He lives. He's not dead. He is alive. Jesus, our priest, represents us before the Father. Go to the next slide. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. While in heaven he stands, there's not a tongue, there's not an accuser, there's not anyone that can bring an accusation against you this morning that will separate you from the love of God. Because of the high priest that represents us today. Go to the second verse. This is my favorite one. When Satan tempts me to despair. Are you tempted this morning by your sin? Are you in despair this morning because of your guilt from failures this week? It's very easy for us to bring in sin and, and despair and guilt. But when Satan tempts me to despair... And tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and I see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look at him who suffered in my place and died for me. What we just took of communion is a celebration of the fact that you are right with God this morning, not because of your guilt, not because of your sin, and not because of your own righteousness, but because of the perfect righteousness of Jesus, who right now, as we're preaching the Word, as we're hearing the Word, as we're responding to the Word, Jesus is interceding before the throne of God on our behalf. Isn't that good? So you're free this morning. You're free in Jesus. You have been justified. God has declared you to be right with Him. And so you're good. And God looks at you this morning based on the work of Jesus. And He doesn't just say, uh, not guilty. He says, righteous. You are perfect this morning in the eyes of God because of the work of Jesus. I just had to say that, right? Because we sing that song. It's one of my favorite songs because it reminds us of our justification. That is good gospel news for us this morning. And so let's not ever get over that. We're in Ephesians this morning. We've been preaching through the book of Acts uh, since we started this new campus. And so for the last two weeks, we have taken a break from Acts to remind us of our spiritual DNA as a church. Who are we as Three Rivers? What is our mission? What is our vision? Why do we exist? And so our, our mission, if you were here last week, you remember our mission uh, is as Three Rivers Church is we are going to disciple the nations for the glory of God by being and producing radical followers of Jesus Christ. And we started talking about our DNA as a church. And there's four words that describe our DNA. 
Two of them we talked about last week. Two of them we'll talk about this week. The first words, anybody remember the four words? Let's say them together. Kingdom, when in doubt, mumble, right? If you weren't here, it's okay. Kingdom, disciple, society, church, right? Kingdom, disciple, society, church. Let me, re, let me remind you of what those mean. Kingdom means we preach the gospel of the kingdom, Right? We preach a gospel, not of salvation, but of the kingdom. I grew up in a church, and most of us grew up in a church that probably only preached a gospel of salvation. And what is a gospel of salvation? You believe in Jesus, have your sins forgiven, so you don't have to go to hell, and then spend the rest of your life trying to tell other people how to not go to hell. And there's nothing wrong with that. that that's true, right? The gospel saves us from hell, and it saves us from the wrath of God. But the question is... Not only what does the gospel save us from, but what does the gospel save us to? The reason a lot of Christians are bored with Christianity is because they say, well, I've already believed the gospel, I'm saved from hell, so now what do I do with the rest of the 70 years I have left on planet earth, right? What am I going to do with my life? Is it just to save people from hell? And no, the gospel of the kingdom says we're not just saved from hell, we're saved to bring God's kingdom to the earth. To bring the reality that is in heaven as it is in heaven, so it will be on earth. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. We want his kingdom to come here. We're not just going to his kingdom there. So we preach the good news of the kingdom. That Jesus is king. That he saved us as rebels. He has saved us from the slavery of sin. And he has brought us into his kingdom of life. And what does that do? When you preach the gospel of the kingdom Disciples are made. Kingdom disciple. And so we spent some time talking about the Great Commission last week. And what does it mean for us to make disciples, to be followers of Jesus, who make disciples, who call other people to follow Jesus? Which brings us to the next two parts of our DNA as a church. Kingdom, disciple, society, church. These disciples are meant to engage society. I've given you two pages of notes uh, don't be uh, afraid. I promise to get done by 12 o'clock, okay? So what, what does this mean, though? We talk about society. If you look at the page on society, I'm not going to spend as much time here, uh, but I want us to understand what does it mean for disciples of Jesus' kingdom to enter into domains of society. So what is society? Society is composed of groups of people who work within their own areas of expertise or their domains, you read Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, and what does God tell Adam and Eve to do? Go to the world and take dominion, to have dominion. Man was created to have dominion over all the earth, and that means we take dominion over domains. So what are domains? Domains in society, it's the building blocks of society. So we're talking about things like government, education, right? Um, finance, all of these areas we can talk about are what makes society what it is. So why is society so important? These domains of society become crucial in the transformation of a city. This is why Paul spent a lot of his time in big cities. He wanted to go to Rome, to Ephesus, to Antioch. All of these were big cities because big cities are where culture is made. Did you know that? Culture trickles down from big cities. This is why Hollywood has such a huge 
impact on our culture, right? Los Angeles, Hollywood, New York, all of these places are cultural centers where culture is made. And so if you can take dominion over society, over the big cities, then it's going to impact the smaller cities as well. But here's the big question we need to ask about society. The big question is, what if the entire church was the missionary? And when we talk about missionaries, we talk about people from churches who go across the world, across the ocean, to other nations, and they preach the gospel there. And so we define missionaries as people, but what if the primary missionary is the church? And what if the way that that God was going to extend the gospel and make disciples of all nations was through church planting and through making disciples. And as these disciples in society begin to, to, to grow, churches are born and churches are built and churches are multiplied. What if the church was the missionary? What if the entire church was the missionary? And it wasn't just a few people that we commission and send out. What if every one of us in here are considered to be the missionary. That means we all enter our domains of society. So I want to ask you, where do you work? What's your job? What domain is yours? Some of you are determining your major. Wherever your major sends you, it doesn't matter what major you have, what matters is what are you going to do when you get there? Are you going to make disciples when you get into that domain? My dad's not here this morning, and I've told this story, but uh, before, um, a lot of you haven't heard this. My dad uh, just retired from Georgia Power 38 years, 39 years actually, at Georgia Power. That's a long time to be anywhere for 39 years, right? And for 39 years, my dad thought that he was outside of the will of God because he did not enter the ministry. And I remember having this conversation with him one night where he said, I'm at work, Josh, I go to work every day, and I'm so sick of it because I share the gospel, and my dad is an evangelist, okay? I'm not an evangelist. Evangelists are not the people that stand up in church and preach the gospel. A real evangelist is the people that go door to door and the people that talk to people one-on-one in the face and just share the gospel. My dad's an evangelist, y'all. He's not afraid, not bashful at all. He says for 39 years he has shared the gospel with men at Georgia Power, both at Plant Hammond and Plant Bowen in Cartersville, And these people continue to reject the gospel. There's very few converts there. And my dad says, Josh, I feel like 39 years ago, before I went to Georgia Power, God wanted me to do the ministry, to be in the ministry. And I ignored it because I was scared. And so I went to go get a regular job instead. And I said, Dad, you didn't miss the ministry. You've been doing ministry for 39 years. It just so happens that your your church doesn't have a steeple on top of it. You're actually the pastor of Georgia Power. And he said, what do you mean? I said, Dad, you're a pastor to people who are never going to have a pastor. They're not going to go to church. They're not going to come hear me speak. You're the only Christian that has any impact in their life. That is your domain of society. You work in the power business, the energy business. We need Christians there. We need good, godly people there. I said, Dad, you're the, you're the pastor at Georgia Power. He said, I... I never thought about that. He said, I only got one other Christian that I work with, this guy named Harry Hammock, and Harry's my only buddy, my only Christian, and I'm going to go tell Harry that tomorrow, that that I'm I'm the pastor. So my dad went to work the next morning at Georgia Power, and he said, Harry, come in my office. Harry comes into the office, and my dad looks at Harry Hammock and says, Harry, I just found out last night that I am the pastor 
here at the warehouse at Georgia Power. And Harry looks at my dad and says, really? James, that's great. Can I be your deacon? <laughs> and so my, my dad had this, had this transfer that had to have his mind changed, this transformation of how he thought, because he thought that if you didn't go to a church and you didn't preach on Sunday morning, that somehow you weren't doing the ministry. And what he failed to realize was that he had a ministry, and he was a pastor. And so I would ask you, where are you a pastor? You may not be preaching sermons, but you're giving a faithful witness where you are. That means that Joey Taylor working at Enterprise is the pastor at Enterprise, car rental, right? You're the pastor there, dude. My brother-in-law's here, Chris. He's getting training. It's super secret stuff. Not really, but it, it sounds cool what he does. Um, what do you do, Chris, by the way? Homeland. Homeland Security. Pretty cool, right? He's the pastor of Homeland Security. He doesn't know that. I haven't told him that yet, but he is. Because there's guys down in Brunswick where he goes to get training, and they need to hear the gospel. Clint teaches biology. He's the man at Shorter, chair of the science department. Science people need Jesus, right? They just do. Brad teaches in history. He's in education. People in education, even at a Christian school, believe it or not, he teaches at Unity. They need to hear the gospel, right? There's, I just met Larry. Is that your name? Larry, what do you do? Christian school. They need Jesus too, right? What, no matter what. Ben washes windows for a living. And you know what? He does it to the glory of God. That's his domain. And there's nothing less uh, about washing windows or teaching in a school or, or doing car rentals than there is about preaching the gospel on Sunday morning. We all have our domain of society. Justin Owens does accounting, and somehow he probably weaves the gospel into that every day, right? Debit credit, man. You're in debt to your sin, and you need the righteousness of Jesus. Bro, you can use that this week, right? When you're doing everybody's taxes, right? We all have our domains of society. So don't think that because you're not going into men... I tell, I tell so many college students, don't go get a Bible degree. You need to go get a degree and be a mechanic, be a plumber, be, go in education, go into government, run for politics, be president. Goodness knows we need Christian people in politics. We need Christian people everywhere, not just gathered in the church. So there's got to be this transfer of thinking as we enter domains of society. So the big question... Question, what if the church was the missionary? What if you're the missionary and not just me? So there's four shifts of thinking in your notes there. I'm going to go through these really quickly, okay? Four key shifts we need to think about. The first shift is from needs to assets. From needs to assets. This is a shift of mindset. This is not an organizational change or a shift in how we do process. It's a shift in how we see other members of the church. And so we move from asking what we need to evaluating the assets that we have and how we can serve our domains. So for each section, I've given a wrong question and a right question because I think this helps understand things. Wrong question. What did you get out of the service today? Now, I know we've probably all asked that question, but that's the wrong question to ask because now you're talking about your needs. How can the church serve my needs? Wrong thinking. Let's transfer that thinking and ask the right question. How can I engage my domain of society with the gospel of the kingdom? You stop thinking about how the church can serve you and you start thinking about how you can use your gifts, your talents, and how you can be equipped through the church to engage your domain. Does that make sense? 
from needs, my needs, to my assets. What do I have? What am I good at that I can use to engage my domain? The second shift is a shift from programs to domain engagement. This is where Three Rivers is a little different from a lot of other churches. This shift has organizational implications. This is how we organize and get the work done. This, this is as spirit-led members of the community of the church take ownership and responsibility for their actions. So let me give you the wrong question. The wrong question is, what does this church or this pastor offer me and my family? You get a lot of people that ask that question. What does this church offer me and my family? What programs do you have for my children? Now, there's nothing wrong with a program if a church has a program. Nothing wrong with that, but we have a different way of thinking. And so instead of us thinking about what can the church offer, the right question is, what is my domain and how can I take this domain for the kingdom? This is like the JFK question, right? John F. Kennedy, remember? He asked, had that famous quote, ask not what you can do for your country or what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. I'm going to ask that for you today. Don't ask, what can the church do for me, but what can I do for the church? So this is different at Three Rivers because we don't have a lot of programs. We don't have a lot of things during the week to keep you busy at the church because we want you to be busy in your domains. We want you to gather together in your small groups, radical life groups during the week and talk about how can we engage our community. What happens a lot is that there's events going on every night at churches in town and people are so busy going to church every day of the week they don't have time to engage their culture. They don't have time to get together and invite their neighbors over for dinner. They don't have time because they're too busy coming to church every night of the week. Now, I'm not against programs, but I'm much more for engaging domains. I told you, this is a shift in thinking. This is what makes Three Rivers, three riversy. Okay, We're a little, little edgy, a little different. All right? There's a third shift. A third shift. A shift from working for the city to working with the city. Or another way to say that, from simply funding the cross-cultural worker to partnering with the cross-cultural worker to get global resources in the work. Okay, This is a shift from relationships and expectations. It changes the way that we as the church interact with our community. The church needs to become a partner to help create solutions rather than just be a place that sends money to other organizations. It means we get flesh in the game. We start asking questions about what are the needs in this surrounding community? What are the needs in our local schools? And how can we as the church work with the schools to serve? This is, this is what gives us the opportunity to do evangelism. This is what gives us a voice to share the gospel. So the wrong question to ask here is which organization should... to to which organization should we donate our money? Where can we send some resources where there's a need? Right? This goes beyond that. This is, this, is, this is much more than the church just writing a check. Instead of asking where can we send our money, we ask this question. How can every member of our church use their resources in our community to make disciples? It's a different question, right? That's different than saying, where can we just send our money? Because that's just saying, okay, here's your money, take the money, do what you want to with it, and we'll just keep being the church. 
One of the ways that we engage society here at the church is through Restoration Rome. This blows my mind every time I talk about this, that the city gave us an elementary school. Do y'all know that? For a dollar. Because they realize they have a need, a great need in this community of foster care and adoption. Isn't it ironic that Floyd County, that has more churches per capita than any other place in America, has the greatest need for foster care and adoption. We send more children outside of this county to other places in the state because we don't have enough room for children who don't have a place to live. And we're the most churched place in America. And if you, had, if you look at the state of Georgia, in the top northwestern corner, Rome, Georgia, by far, is the worst place that takes care of their orphans. Worst. And so what do we do? We're not just going to send money to an orphanage. No, we... We want to do something, right? So Restoration Rome is a way that we as the church can work together. And so we got this school and all of the, all of the foster care and adoption services in Rome are coming to this place to have all of their offices in one place to meet the needs of the community. The truth is that if every church in Rome, Georgia, if each church in Rome, Georgia, were to adopt one child, and what by, me, by that I mean if, if one family in each church in Rome, Georgia, were to take a child and that church were to support that family in bringing that child in and getting, giving them a home, the adoption and foster care system would be gone next week if every church in Rome, Georgia would just take one child. Did you know that? And so how can we say that, we, that, we, that we're for this and how can we read James 1.27 that true and undefiled religion is this, that we care for orphans and widows and we have this great need. We need to do something about it. So rather than just send money, we want to partner with the city. And when the city sees the church getting involved, the, 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 the city starts to partner with the church and so we get these buildings, which is pretty cool. And we start doing the work, and we get engaged. And we have lots of opportunities for us as the church to make a difference in our community and take this domain of society. Last shift is from managing ministries to leading members. And this impacts our decision-making. Wrong question to ask this morning is what ministry is the pastor going to run? A lot of pastors get chewed up and spit out because people bring ideas for them and say, hey, pastor, I think you, could, you should start this ministry. And so the, the pastor's doing all this ministry juggling, trying to appease everyone, rather than empowering people who are passionate about those ministries. So the right question is, how will the leadership or the pastors release the body to supply its part in the kingdom? So here's what's going to happen. If you come to me or Emmett or Brad and you say, hey, uh, I've got a, a good idea for ministry. We're not just going to start that ministry here at the church and run it. It would be far better for us to say, you know what, you have a passion for that, go get it. Go. You're spirit-filled, we're behind you, we'll support you, we'll empower you, we'll enable you, you go. And you recruit people for the work, and if you need anything from us, you let us know. And if people took that type of ownership... Man, that just, that just changes the way that we engage domains. It changes the way we engage society. It changes the way that we do church. 
The church is not just a place for me to come get my needs met. It's a place to equip me for ministry to engage my domain. Let me show you where that is. In Ephesians chapter 4. I know you're probably wondering, is he going to preach from the Bible? Yes. Ephesians 4. And this is going to lead into our discussion about the church. Ephesians 4. Verse 1. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Here we go. This is the church, one body, one spirit, right? This is the church. And what did God give to the church? Verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. The word for spiritual gift comes from the word grace. It's a grace gift. So if you have a spiritual gift this morning, and if you're a Christian, you do. You have at least one. That means that Jesus has given each of us spiritual gifts, and those gifts come from His grace. They're grace gifts. All of us have a grace gift, and He gave us these gifts to serve the body and to serve the community. It talks about how Christ came down and He sent gifts down. Look at verse 11. This is what He gave to the church. Verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to do the work of ministry. Is that what it says? No, it's not what it says. What does it say? Why did God give leadership to the church? It was not for the leadership just to go do ministry. Verse 12 says, He gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For building up the body of Christ until we all attain unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. The way the church is unified and the way the church matures is by every member of the church working in ministry. So I got news for you. You all have been called to ministry this morning. Not just me, not just your pastors. It's not a special calling for a few. This is a divine command for all of us. In fact, Ephesians 4 actually says that I left ministry the day I became a pastor. You say, what do you mean? The pastor's job is not just to do ministry, it's to equip the church to do ministry. So now our primary job as a pastor isn't just to do everything, but to equip all of us to be able to do the work of ministry. Does that make sense? So we're all in the game. You're all called to ministry this morning. You know, your ministry not be, may, may not be at church. It may be uh, in a school somewhere, or it might be in a factory somewhere, but we all have the work of ministry to do. Which brings us to the last part of our DNA, which is what I want to spend the most time on this morning. Because... When we talk about kingdom, disciple, society, church, as disciples are made in domains of society and those disciples gather together, what do you have? You have the church. 
And when we read in Scripture about the church, we see that being a member of the church is really, really important. And so if you go to that second page of the notes, I want to talk to us about what does it mean to be a part of the community of the kingdom. The kingdom of God, the community of the kingdom is the church. And the church is the primary way that evangelism is done. And so there's this issue, in, especially Rome, Georgia, but just in America in general, I think there's a lot of people who date the church, but they don't want to get too involved with the church. It's this commitment phobia. I don't know if it's just we're a bunch of millennials and that's just we're just afraid to commit to anything. But there's this dating the church mentality. I'm a campus minister, college minister, so I can say this. College students tend to do this a lot. They date the church. And I understand if, like, if you're a freshman, you just got here in town and you're trying to figure out the best place for you. I'm not talking to you, all right? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who perpetually, four years, will just go to church, to church, to church, and they'll find the church that meets their need, and they'll get what they need from that church. And this isn't just college students. There's grown adults who do this too, right? People who've been Christians for a long time. They just go to church, to church, and they look for the church that meets their needs. And when this church doesn't meet their needs, they break up with them and they go find someone else to date. So the question is, why do we date the church? Why do people date the church? Now, there's a few reasons, all right? So if you're taking notes, keeping score at home, there in your notes, this is for help, help you follow along, all right? Why do we date the church? I think there's several reasons. The first reason is some of us are independent, all right? We're independent. And we say, well, I don't need the church. There's people who say, I, my church is, I wake up in the morning, I listen to Christian music on the radio, I read my Bible, and that is my church. But is, is that really church? You're just independent. The second reason some people date the church, maybe we're indifferent, don't care. Well, who cares if I join the church? It doesn't really matter to me. It's not important. Okay? The third reason some people date the church, maybe we're immature, spiritually immature. Maybe we, we just don't understand the importance of the church. We haven't grown to spiritual maturity. We haven't really studied a lot about what the Scripture says. And, and so maybe we're just immature and we don't realize that we need the church and we need to be engaged in a local body. Number four, maybe we're indecisive. Some people just can't decide which one they want to go to. There's just so many good ones and I can't figure out where I want to get plugged in. And maybe, number five, another reason people date the church, maybe we're ignorant and we just don't know the importance of, of church membership. Why is the church important? So those are some reasons I think people date the church, but I want to give you some reasons why we need to stop dating the church. And I think this is appropriate as, as next week our church is actually starting a membership class. Um, this is a chance, it's a six-week class for you to get to know the church, to get to know Three Rivers. Uh, three weeks will be at Unity, three weeks will be here. And it's just a class for you to meet the elders, to, to, to know what the church is about, to see if Three Rivers is the right place for you. And so if you're not a part of a church and you're looking for a church, I would highly encourage you to sign up for that membership class that's going to start next week. And maybe today as we look at Scripture and we look at what the Bible says, maybe it will be a good encouragement for you to say, you know what, we need to get plugged in. So why do we, why do we need to stop dating the church? First is because God's Word says membership in the local church is important. It's important. Now, I want to make two points here. 
First, membership in a local church is not biblically commanded. It's the next blank in your notes. It's not biblically commanded. And what I mean by that is there's not a verse in the Bible that you can point to that says, Thou shalt join a church and become a member. It's not there. But just because it's not there explicitly doesn't mean that it's not implicit. In other words, membership in a local church is not biblically commanded, but membership in a local church is biblically implied. It's implied that there is membership. Now, where, where do we see implied membership? What, is, what does this look like? Well, first of all, there's several examples of this, and the first is this. Membership is implied by church gatherings. Membership in Scripture is implied by church gatherings. The very word church in in Greek is ekklesia, and it means the gathering, right? The, The gathered ones, the called out ones, those who are gathering together, the ecclesia, it's the church. Verse, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul writes to the church. Who's he writing to? If there's no membership, if you don't know who's in the church and who's not, how does, how does Paul know who he's writing to at the church in Corinth? And so when we talk about the church the called out ones, the gathering of believers, we mean it in two different ways. The church is both universal, which means all Christians everywhere in the world, and the church is local. The church is local. So the universal church, that means people who are all over the world this morning who are gathered, some people gathered underground, some people gathering in secret, People all over the world in every country who are believers are gathering. That's called the church universal. But then we also have to differentiate between the universal church, all Christians, and then the local church. We read Acts chapter 11, verse 22. You you see Peter bringing these people together. And you have Paul and Barnabas. You have the church forming. Verse 22 says, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. So you have a church in Jerusalem that's a local body, a local believers, the Jewish Christians that gathered there. You also have a church in Antioch. So you have churches in Ephesus and Laodicea and Thessalonica. You have all these churches that gathered and they're local churches. So what is the church? The church is the visible expression of of the universal body of Christ. The local church is the visible expression of the universal church. So by our small gathering here, we are a visible expression of the church that is gathered around the world. That's why it's important for us to be here on Sunday because we are expressing the the, the value of the church gathered together. Remember Acts chapter 9? We studied this a few weeks ago where Paul or who is Saul of Tarsus. He's on his way to Damascus, and God knocks him off of his horse. Jesus blinds him on the road to Damascus. Paul had been persecuting the church, right? He had been persecuting Christians. He had been imprisoning Christians. He had been killing Christians. He had been persecuting the church. But Jesus, when he meets Saul on the road to Damascus, Jesus doesn't say, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? What does Jesus say? Saul, 
Why do you persecute me? Me. So part of what it means to belong to the church is to belong to the body of Christ means that you belong to a body of Christ. For Jesus, the church is connected with Jesus Himself. And so to forsake the church is to forsake Jesus. Membership is implied by local gatherings. The second reason that it's implied is from church discipline. Membership is implied by church discipline. This comes from Matthew chapter 18. Church membership is implied by the way that the church is supposed to discipline its members. So consider the implications of Matthew chapter 18 where the church appears to be the final court of appeal in matters of church authority as it relates to membership. So in Matthew chapter 18, um, you may have read this, Jesus says if you have a fault with your brother, what are you supposed to do first? You can talk to me in church. What are you supposed to do? Go to him privately, right? It always starts inward. And if that person doesn't repent, then what do you do? Second step of church discipline. Bring somebody else, right? Bring a witness. Bring two or three others. Which, by the way, interestingly enough, when you ask people what is the church, and you ask them what is a church, what's one of the definitions of a church people usually give? They usually say, well, it's when two or three people are gathered in Jesus' name, right? How many of you have heard someone say that? You may have said that yourself, not knowing. Do you know that they take that from Matthew chapter 18? And that the two or three that are gathered in Jesus' name is not a worship service. It's actually two or three people confronting someone else to bring them to repentance. And Jesus says that when two or three are gathered in my name to exercise discipline on someone else, to confront them in their sin, Jesus says, I'm with them. I'm behind them in that. So the definition of a church isn't just when two or three people gather in Jesus' name because what happens if two of those people go to the bathroom and there's only one left? Is there no church now? No. Jesus isn't talking about that as a church. He's saying when there's someone who sins in the church, part of church discipline, you go privately, then you bring two or three other people. But what if they don't listen? What if they refuse to repent then? What does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 18? You take that person in front of the whole church. Jesus uses the word church. So even in the New Testament, during Jesus' day, he had, an, he had an understanding of the church, that there would be a gathering of people to which you would be responsible for. And if that person refuses to listen to the church, Jesus says you let him be as a Gentile or a tax collector. In other words, you excommunicate them. You say you're no longer part of our fellowship because you refuse to live in repentance. You refuse to confess sin. If there's no church membership, how can you define the group that's going to take up the sensitive and weighty matter of exhorting an unrepentant person to repent? If there's no church membership, who are you going to bring the person in front of if they're not acting right, or if they're living in sin? It's hard to believe that just anyone who showed up claiming to be a Christian could be part of a gathering and so surely the church must be a definable group to handle such a weighty matter. And then the fact that excommunication even exists, right? The fact that you might have someone be removed from your fellowship. If there's no in, how can there be an out? This is what 
1 Corinthians 5 is all about. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, What do I have to do with judging outsiders? Paul says, I don't judge non-Christians. They're already under condemnation. I don't have to judge those people because they're already they're in sin and, and God's going to judge them. I don't have to judge the outsider. He says, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, but purge the evil person from among you. Now that doesn't mean that we're all a bunch of spiritual police going around shining flashlights on everybody else's sin and saying, oh, you messed up, you got to get out. That's not what church discipline is. This is always restorative. It's, it's in love to, to show people, hey, look, man, what you're doing isn't right, and I love you. And, and that, most of the time the person says, hey, man, I'm sorry. I didn't know I shouldn't have done that. And there's restoration. There's gospel implications here. But if you have an unrepentant person who continues to persist in willful sin, And that person needs to be removed from fellowship as an act of judgment, hopefully to bring them to repentance. But if there's no in, if there's no membership, how can there be an out? So biblical membership is implied, church membership is implied by church discipline. You have excommunication of members. In order to be put out of church, there must be in. Membership is implied by church leadership. This is the next blank in your notes. It's implied by church leadership. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 17 says for believers to obey and submit to their leaders. Leaders of what? So you have Christians that are, that are required to submit to leaders because they are keeping watch over our souls. The point here is that without membership, who is it that the New Testament is referring to who must submit to a specific group of leaders? How is this leadership and submission going to work if there's no membership defining who has made the commitment to be led and who has been chosen as leaders? Right? So we talk about leadership in the church. Well, if, if there's a if leadership is implied, if the Bible talks about there being spiritual leaders, that means pastors have to be responsible for someone, right? It's implied for the way the elders are supposed to care for their flock. Now, I'm a pastor, I'm an elder here at the church, and, and as, as elders, we want to extend our love to everybody, right? Everyone in the community, we want to reach out to everyone. But the question is, whether the Bible tells elders that they have to, they have a special responsibility for a certain group. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul tells the elders how to care for their flock. He says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. This verse doesn't say that elders can't visit unbelievers or those who are not yet members. If you're not a member of the church and you get sick, we're going to pray for you. We want to visit you. But it does make clear that as an elder, our first primary responsibility is to a particular flock. So how is the pastor to know who his flock is? Who are we as elders and pastors responsible for? Who is it that I'm going to give an account for when I stand before Jesus one day and have to give an account for the way that I lead the church and pastor the church? Who do I have to give an account for? Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 5. He's even more clear. 
He says in 1 Peter 5, verse 2, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but do it eagerly, not domineering for those in your charge, but be an example to the flock. So church membership is implied by leadership. If there's leaders, that means those leaders have to be responsible for someone. Finally, membership is implied by church accountability. So I want to ask you a question. What local body of believers are you accountable to? In Acts chapter 6, we see leaders being chosen 1 Corinthians 5, we have the church defining membership. In Acts chapter 13, the church is accountable to send missionaries. In Galatians chapter 1, the church is responsible for preaching and guarding the gospel. Right? I'm a campus minister, but the truth is Jesus didn't die on a cross to save campus ministry. He died for the church. He laid his life down for the church. So I want to ask you, who are you accountable to this morning? Which leaders are you submitting to? Are you a member of a church? And so quickly, I want to talk about the importance of the local church. So the, the important question, what is the church? That's a good question to ask, right? If someone asked you, hey, what is a church? How would you answer that question? What is a church? Hopefully you wouldn't say it's where two or three are gathered in Jesus' name, right? We don't want to rip out the Bible and just make it mean what we want it to mean. That's not what a church is. So I'm going to give you a simple definition, okay? Here's what makes up a church. And I put it in, in, in italics there, and you can kind of see where we're going here in the notes. The church is a local body of baptized believers joined together under biblical leadership to grow in the likeness of Christ and express the love of Christ to each other and to the world around them. That's a church. You want to memorize that? So you got it in your pocket when someone asks you, what is the church? A church is a local body of baptized believers joined together under biblical leadership to grow in the likeness of Christ and express the love of Christ to each other and to the world around them. You'll probably freak somebody out if you say it that fast, right? Just pop it off. But what does that mean? All right, let's take this piece by piece very quickly. What does it mean? A church is, first, a local body of baptized believers. We're baptized, meaning that we have been baptized into a new covenant. We are recipients of a new covenant. Right? In the old covenant, the covenant was given to Abraham through circumcision. Right? And they were part of this promise that God made that you will be my people and I will be your God. Membership in our covenant is not through circumcision, but through baptism. Baptism is a declaration that we belong to Jesus. And so if you're going to be a member of our church, you need to be a baptized Christian, meaning that you have identified yourself with Jesus, and that you have declared to our church and to the world that you're going to follow Jesus. So we're recipients of a new covenant, but we're also members of a new community. We're members of a new community. Baptism is a declaration, not just that we belong to Jesus, but it's a declaration that we belong to each other. When you're baptized, you're saying, I'm baptized into a community of other Christians, into a family. So we are a local body of baptized believers, right? We believe the gospel. 
To be a member of our church, we expect you to believe the gospel, right? That's like foundational for entry, which makes sense, right? To be in a Christian church, you need to be a Christian. You need to have repented of your sin and and have an ongoing lifestyle of repentance and believe in the gospel and trusting in Jesus. So we're a local body of baptized believers. Second, join together under biblical leadership. All right, we've talked about the importance of church leadership. And so why do we have it? The church is entrusted with servants of the word. We are entrusted with servants of the word. So as the church, we have men who stand and preach and teach. We have men and women who teach in our radical life groups, in our, in our, in our radical kids. We have people who teach the Bible. They are servants of the Word. So the church has been entrusted with servants of the Word, and the church is equipped to be servants with the Word. Pastors are not the only people who are expected to teach, right? If you're a Christian, we, you need to be reproducing the Word, making disciples. Don't just receive the Word this morning. Go reproduce the Word. Teach the Word. Make disciples. We're a local body of baptized believers joined together under biblical leadership. Third, to grow in the likeness of Christ. We want to grow in the likeness of Christ. And so what does that mean for us? Very quickly, together, we as the church, we want to know the truth of Christ. Isn't that true? I hope you came here this morning because you want to know just a little bit more about Jesus. To grow in the knowledge of Him. And so we gather together as the church because one of our primary goals is to know Jesus, to know Him and the power of His resurrection, to grow in the likeness of Christ. And so what do we do? We guard one another from deception. We want to know the truth of Christ, and so we guard one another from deception and false teaching. That is one of our primary jobs as as elders is to guard the flock from ravenous wolves who would seek to get into the church with false teaching and to lead people astray. So we guard people from deception so that they can know the truth of Christ. So we want to know the truth of Christ. Together we want to imitate the character of Christ. We don't just want to know more about Jesus. We want to live to be more like Jesus. And so we guard one another from division. We are one body, one church. Ephesians 4 says that we may maintain the unity of the bond of the Spirit. There's unity in the church. And so in order for us to maintain unity, we imitate Christ and the character of Christ. And together we want to display the fullness of Christ. We want the fullness of Jesus. To know Jesus, we want people to know Him. We want, to see, we want people to see the implications of the gospel lived out in our lives. We want our communities to know the love of Christ by the way that we share with them and serve them in our domains. And so if we're going to display the fullness of Christ, we as the church must guard one another from distraction. Distraction. It's easy to get distracted and to chase other things, but our goal is to display the fullness of Christ. We want to be more and more like Jesus. Right? That's why we gather together. That's why we pray for one another. That's why we encourage one another. Because the more and more we see Jesus as He is, the more and more we're going to become like Him. And so the church is a local body of baptized believers joined together under biblical leadership to grow in the likeness of Christ. Finally, and express the love of Christ to each other 
and to the world around them. Love is the distinguishing mark of the church. What makes us the church is that we are a people who love one another. And if you're a true Christian, that means you're willing to inconvenience yourself to love other people. And sometimes it will require you to be inconvenienced. You may have to deny yourself, deny your own desires and what you want to do for the sake of serving other people. I'll be honest, I, I don't like pulling weeds. Uh, they're not fun. I don't like digging ditches, digging holes. Um, but something we got to do as a, together as the church a few weeks ago um, out on the playground here, we wanted to serve the children who go to school here at Providence. We wanted to serve the children who go to church here at Chapel Hill and our own children. And they were walking into this jungle of a, of a playground like the weeds were as taller than my child right now he's only like a foot tall but still right he would walk to the playground you couldn't see him anymore because the weeds were so high and so we the church gathered together inconvenienced themselves for a Saturday to pull weeds to pour mulch and it looks a lot better if you want to see the before and after picture I'll show it to you it's amazing and it was just because Christians love one another we love our kids and we want them to have a good playground but that goes to any area of our lives, not just playgrounds. How can you inconvenience yourself to show love to one another? Love is the distinguishing mark of the church. We are a people who love one another. And love is the essence of church membership. The essence of being a member of the church is that we're going to love people. And so, who are we going to love? Why should you join a church to love people? I want to give you four people that you can love, right? We join a church first for the good of ourselves. Why should you join a church? For your own good. Just be selfish for a minute. It's okay, right? You you need to be spiritually fed. You need to be in a community of other Christians. It's for your own good. It's for the good of your soul and for the good of your family to be joined with people. It's for your good. So if you don't join a church for any other reason, join it for yourself, right? It's for our own good. If you love yourself and you look in the mirror and you say, self, I love you, Join the church, be a member, become a part of the church and show love to your own self and love for your soul. Hopefully that's not the only reason you join the church. There's another reason. We join a church for the good of ourselves and we join a church for the good of other Christians. If you go back to Ephesians 4, and you read... Ephesians 4, verse 7, it says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Every one of you has a spiritual gift. And the truth is, your spiritual gift is not meant to serve yourself. Spiritual gifts, by their own definition, are meant to serve other people. For instance, I have a gift of teaching. I enjoy teaching. Teaching makes no sense if I just teach myself, right? I can't use that spiritual gift to serve me. That's dumb, right? Josh, let me teach you what I learned today, right? No, it doesn't make sense. I share my gift with others because that's, it, that's the nature of the gift. I serve other people. So other people have a gift of generosity. 
Some people have a gift of making money, and they're able to be generous. Right? And so generosity, you can't be generous to yourself. That's not using your gift. Your gift is to use money to serve the church and to meet the needs of others. If you have a gift of mercy or a gift of encouragement, you don't just write encouraging notes to yourself. That's schizophrenic, right? We need to send you to a doctor or a counselor if you're doing that. But if you, the reason you encourage people, you have this gift, is to encourage others. So spiritual gifts are always meant to serve the body. So I want to ask you a question. If you're not a member of a church, and you're not engaged in the church, and you're not serving the church, you're actually withholding your spiritual gift from someone else. Someone else in this church needs the gifts that you have. And so you join a church for the good of other people, because other people need your gifts. Because our gifts complement one another. Third reason you need to join a church. For the good of yourself for the good of other Christians, and we join a church for the good of non-Christians. Join a church for the good of non-Christians. There are people in your community, in your school, at your job, who need to hear the gospel and need to meet Christ. And one of the ways that you can be empowered is to join the church where you have other people praying for you and supporting you and helping you in that work. We join a church for the good of ourselves. We need it. We join a church for the good of other Christians to use our gifts to serve others. We join a church for the good of non-Christians so that they can hear the gospel. And finally, we join a church for the glory of God. We join a church to be a part of a fellowship, to be a part of Christ's body. When we talk about the church, one of the pictures Jesus gives of the church is it's his body, right? And what happens if you remove a member of the body? The body becomes disabled. If you remove a foot or a leg or a hand, or an eye, or an ear, all of a sudden the church can't function at full power, at full strength, right? And so if the body of Christ is to, is to exist in such a way that it glorifies God by working together in unity, we need every member working. The church exists for the glory of God and for the advancement of the gospel to all nations. And so when you join the church, we join for the glory of God to join a worshiping people who are all committed to the same task of making Jesus' name great among the nations. And so let's finally do what every relationship should do if you're dating. The DTR. Right? That's what we called it. You know what DTR is? Define the relationship. Uh, this is that awkward moment in the relationship when you need to define right, who are we. All right? Are we just dating for fun or, or where's this going? Right? So let's have a little DTR talk about you and the church. Membership in the local church involves committing your life in covenant with other believers to do two things. To join your life in covenant to show the gospel to each other and to spread the gospel to the world. 
to show the gospel to each other and to spread the gospel to the world. And so as we define this relationship, I want to I want to close by urging you to to pray and to think this through for your own life. Here's the reality. The New Testament knows of no Christians who are not accountable members of local churches in the sense that we've just seen in Scripture. Lone Ranger Christians are a contradiction because becoming a Christian means being united to Christ. And union with Christ expresses itself in union with a local body of believers. And so it seems to us in the New Testament to be excluded from the local church was to be excluded from Christ Himself. And this is why the issue of church membership is so important. So I'll ask you one more time. Are you an accountable member of a local church? Not just as your name somewhere, but are you committed to discipline and being disciplined according to biblical standards? Have you publicly declared your willingness to be shepherded and to be led by the leaders of a local church? Do you see yourself and your gifts as part of an organic ministering body? Do you show by your firm attachment to Christ's body that you're attached to Christ? Jesus bought the church with His blood. And so church membership is a blood-bought gift of God's grace. More than most of us realize, church membership is a life-sustaining, faith-strengthening joy-preserving means of God's mercy to us. And so I urge you not to cut yourself off from that blessing. Let's pray. Father, the church is your bride. It is the bride of Christ. We are your treasured possession the bride for whom Christ laid down His life. You have bought the church with your own blood. And so that means every member of your body is important. So Father, today, we don't want to glorify the church. We want to glorify Christ. And so I pray for our people for those who may be looking for a place to, to, to have fellowship and to grow, to be spiritually fed and guarded, I pray that you would impress upon your people to be involved in a local church. And it may not even be three rivers. And that's okay. The Father, may not one of us be disconnected from your body. Father, more than that, I pray that we would see the church as something to be treasured, something to be valued. As we gather today, as the church, we gather as one body, with one faith, in one spirit, to worship one King, one God, one Savior over all. It is all yours. So Jesus, may we worship you now in spirit and in truth. Let us sing with great joy, knowing that we are members of a new covenant, members of a new community that has been purchased by Christ. We are perfectly accepted 
through your righteousness by faith. We are perfectly adopted as your children into your family. We belong to you. And as your children, we worship you, Father, and we sing with great joy today as your community, the community of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and let's worship as the church today.